0: Prior to moving here, about seven and a half so-called years ago, I lived in a beautiful hamlet called San Francisco. To say that the experience of living in San Francisco for six years was sweet, on some levels would be an understatement, and in another way, it would be an absolute lie. Some years ago, I recall living uh, in Hayes Valley. It's a nice neighborhood. It's really close to City Hall. And one bright, beautiful Indian summer day, I was uh, waiting to cross the street, as one does. I did a lot of that in San Francisco. A lot of walking. There was a young girl and her mother... Also attending to cross the street. The young girl was not about to be in the stroller that her mom had her hands on. And by the way, the girl was just old enough to decide for herself she was not only uh, not going to be in the stroller, but she was going to help mom. The entire time that I noticed them, the little girl was looking at me with a deep knowing there was a recognition. I looked at mother, mother was also looking at me. So when the light turned in our favor, they crossed the street and I stayed. As soon as they reached the curb, I knelt down to get to the little girl's level, this ancient sage, who then proceeded, without a word, to put her hand on my head very gently, as if she was offering me a blessing. The entire time that we were with each other, the little girl said not a word, but she spoke volumes. She spoke her truth. I have no idea how old she was. And of course, it's insignificant, because I was looking at wisdom. I was looking at love, looking back at me. I looked up at mother, mother was crying. I proceeded to cry. The girl was very sort of present and very matter-of-fact, looking at me. And the mother says, you see her. I said, of course I do. But what's most significant is she sees me. She sees me ever so clearly. That's one example of how my life has unfolded for so-called 11-plus years. On another occasion... Not soon after a change in my life, which had occurred in this Shangri La of San Francisco, I was in a place called, um, and of course now the name doesn't come to me, Patricia's Green. That's the name of it. It's a little park, it's a city park just outside of where I lived. It was right near Octavia, one of my favorite breakfast restaurants was right there. And I would find myself out there, like most days, meditating. Let me say that again. I found myself out there most days just being. And when I would open my eyes after whatever period of time, I would notice that other people were around me too. A lot of them were so-called Homeless. That's how they identified themselves to me. Because I didn't have any other measure for that other than what they have identified to me. I was more invested in what I was seeing in front of me. And so we would have these fantastic conversations about what really matters. There was no me sitting on the concrete bench. There was no them sitting on the grass. There was only love talking to itself. to say it was sweet would be an understatement. Like I said, this has been my experience daily. And I say so-called 11 plus years because it is always now, isn't it? It is always this ever-present moment that I find myself blissfully having experiences much like yourself. But unlike the first 40 years of my life, And I see some people might be doing the math right now. I was afraid of my own shadow. And like a good Leo. (laughs) I was very strong in the outside. And a quaking mess on the inside. I did what Mother told me. This is not a linear story obviously. My mother dictated most things that went on in our day-to-day lives throughout my young life. I was am the baby of five. I was told once by my mother that I wasn't really planned. It was an early birth. So it was an emergency C-section. The umbilical cord had me around the neck. So for the first few days of my life, I'm stepping way back, I couldn't be touched because I would bruise instantly if somebody touched me. So I stayed in an incubator for a while. I was born and raised in a little city, little town called Riverdale, just south of Atlanta, Georgia. My friends were unliked by my mother. And I would find out later in life why that might be. But my friends were of different races, ethnicities, as much as you could have in a little place like Riverdale, Georgia. There wasn't much diversity. My escapism as a young person was singing. From the time of being in elementary school, junior high, I think they used to call it junior high, in senior high, I sing as early as I can remember. I was always in the choir. And like a dutiful child, the baby of five, I was groomed by my Southern Baptist upbringing to be a youth minister or a music minister. And I was going to buy into that, right? Because I love to sing. It was my escape. Someone asked me one time, living in San Francisco, you know, you don't sound like you're from the South. I said, it's, I sing it out of me. <laughs> you can't do Latin chorals with a southern twang. It just doesn't work. And so that was my way of communicating how I really felt, singing Latin. Words that I could intuit and was fascinated by. That would be my early days of being fascinated by language. And like many things, I pushed aside my identity, my sense of self, because I needed to fit into the mold that Mother had uh, crafted for me. See, my mom was from Alabama, like most of my family. She was raised in a way that her mother didn't really care about how her father raised her because he put her on the pedestal. She was the queen, much to her mother's dismay. So my entire life, my mother was pretty much ruler of everything. She did the checkbook. She would give my father an allowance, even though he made just as much money as she did. Again, it gives you an idea of the environment to which I was raised. And much to my father's dismay, one day as a teenager, I came to him and said, I'll no longer participate in this church. <laughs> and he was devastated for a moment. He was the deacon in a church. He was also a singer in the choir. And so when he asked me why, I said, because the Sunday school teacher said, I asked questions that she couldn't answer, and she had pretty much was done with me. He said, okay. That's the first time that my father would utter those words to me. It's okay. And I was struck by that because my father didn't have much to do with my upbringing. He worked a lot. He would get home late in the evening. My mother... When I came out to her, she said to me, I love you, but I'll never see you again. I was the proud child I had joined the military after high school. I was the only one in our family of the five of us that had any college credits. And so I was put on a pedestal. That pedestal was ripped out that day. And so I was not shocked, but I was quite surprised that she would look at me with this glazed look in her eye and saying, I love you, but I'll never see you again. And in my mind, I was thinking, is that love? Or is that your conception of love? Of course, I didn't say a word because I'd gone too far. I knew that look in my mother's eye. I'd said too much. So instead of going to dinner... Instead of seeing the rest of my condo that I was so proud to show her, the first home that I would ever own, the only home that I would ever own, she told my sister to take me home. So, the sensitive child who was never really encouraged to read, never read a book until I was in the military, who was always at mother's disposal, and if it was only real or acceptable, if she agreed to it, otherwise it's not real. So I ceased to exist in her eyes. Jumping back to San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco with two pieces of luggage, no plan. Previous to that, I spent about three months in Orlando, Florida, living with my cousin to help them with their adopted daughter from Korea and to take care of his wife, who had a lot of cardiac issues. So she was quite weak. I despised Florida. (laughs) It was too hot, too humid, and too flat. Not terribly different from Georgia. At least we had hills in Georgia. And one day, his wife looked at me and said, So have you found a new place yet? I said, no. I just got a job working at Disney. Yes, that's a cliche, and it's true. <laughs> like most people in Orlando work for Disney. I was working the help desk, doing the thing that I knew, which was computers and networking. And she turned Jekyll and Hyde on me in one day. I think she was tired of me being around after three months. I said, you know, it's not possible for me to have enough money to move on. But you know what? You're not going to have it to worry about. My Leo came out. I went home to my little room and meditated. I didn't know this, what it was called. But I got very still, very quiet. Woke up the next morning very clear about what I had to do. I didn't have a credit card. My credit was poor, to say the least. So I went to one of my coworkers and I said, here's some money, can I use your credit card and get a plane ticket to San Francisco? She said, sure. I handed her the cash, I bought the ticket one way, and no plan. My cousin was flummoxed. What are you going to do? I have no clue. What's your plan? Don't I have one? <laughs> well, do you know anyone? Not a soul. I did meet one person online and she agreed to take me from the airport to the heart of San Francisco and I was going to stay in a hostel. That was my introduction to a big city. So there I was, thrust into the heart of San Francisco, and like Alice in Wonderland, I lived for six years in awe of the environment, being able to walk down any street and finding a different culture, a different language, a different ethnic food, I was amazed utterly amazed by the beauty and the fragile nature of such a city I saw it as fragile it's the reason that I left it was ready to break or maybe I was I got my first true lesbian relationship, that was amazing. She was a burlesque performer, right? Feisty redhead, who on weekends was stripped down to her pasties, to which I helped her apply them, (laughs) gladly, and helping the other performers as well. That's how I would spend my weekends for about a year. So in true lesbian fashion, moved in immediately, I was right there, but most things I had, I could fit into a roll-around, so I was an easy girlfriend. She lived in the basement of an old house, very quintessential San Francisco, until one day I found out, or rather, I came to acknowledge that I just got into a relationship with an alcoholic. And one night, after a show, she wasn't coming home. I got there before her, and I hear noises outside. I open the door, and she's making out with a guy. Wrecked, utterly wrecked. And it was a great gift. After she came in, I clutched the pillows. Everything in her place was black. She was a very Gothic person. She actually owned a hearse. That was her car. And I would hear endless tales about how expensive it is to park a hearse in San Francisco. (laughs) I said, but baby, you you bought it. (laughs) And very few places would take it, by the way. So that was the end of the relationship. But something had changed in this separation. I had a sense of purpose, a sense of clarity that I had not experienced before at the end of a relationship, which I've had very few. You see, I was a sensitive child. I wasn't about to start relationships because I knew I couldn't finish what I would start. And so I would deflect from any, uh, anyone that would come on to me and say that I'm not worth it. You're better off somewhere else. Something was different this time. She said, maybe we can work it out. I said, I don't think you can, at least not right now and at least not with me. I think you need help. And I don't have the energy for that. I have to be honest. And so I found a place for $600 a month that I would later find out was assisted affordable housing. Section eight, I think they used to call it. And an old Victorian building in the back of a functioning boutique hotel, which on occasion I would work the front desk as a second job. My primary job at the time was working at Starbucks. I was the opener, riding my bicycle through the streets of San Francisco at four in the morning, rain or shine, rain or dark. (laughs) And I would get there, stock the pastries, and do my thing. Happily listening to music, meeting new friends, seeing old friends, remembering their drinks, and being able to have fun. It was fun. And then something changed. An existential crisis, probably after too many times of listening to Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now on audiobooks, way too many times. <laughs> that started my sense of introspection. I had actually mastered the art of questioning every thought that crossed my mind, every one of them. And by the way, I'm not prescribing this. I drove myself mad. I didn't know what was real anymore. I was getting to a crisis point, the crisis of all crises. I had become an emotional, psychological, spiritual wreck. Just prior to this breakthrough, I had met shamans and had shamanic journeys. I had met Sikhs that would meet, I don't hate Ashbury, and asked them, let's have tea. I'm very curious about your tradition. Tell me about your teaching. I would attend lectures at UCSF that was open to the public about quantum mechanics and kind of getting it. I was absorbing information at such a rate that right now can't even imagine how I did that. Constantly consuming, walking the streets of San Francisco with my iPod in my ears, consuming, consuming. Didn't have much time for pleasantries. And then it broke. One night in this beautiful six hundred dollar a month room that I shared a bathroom and kitchen with three other residents. Most of them were gay and retired. It was pleasant. It was quiet. (laughs) I had hung a mirror with fishing line into the window. And I went and asked questions in the mirror, and like probably all of us have. I'd ask questions like, who would care if you died? What's life all about? What's the point? And instead of walking away, I stayed there, and I saw nothing in the mirror. There was nothing there looking back at me. The first instant freaked me out. My mind got engaged. The second time, I said, yes, of course. This must be the way of it. I heard a word in my head saying, surrender. The next recollection was on the floor, on my knees, drenched in sweat, snot coming out of my nose, tears streaming down my face and I had no energy to wipe any of it away. The next recollection was the next morning, laying on the day bed that I managed to somehow get into and seeing sun- sunlight streaming through the window, the same window. I saw my toes and streaming sunlight on my toes and I bursted out laughing. I said, there are no toes. <laughs> I looked out the window, trees, those aren't trees, that's an idea. I did an inventory of the room and thoroughly satisfied that I had no knowledge of anything. The voices in my head, the buzzing sound that I lived with for 40 years stopped. I don't say this to impress you. I say this to impress upon you that now is all there ever is. What you do with it is essential what are you open to is everything as Becky said earlier love is what you have left at the end of the day I'm paraphrasing and for about eight months I wasn't much of a conversationalist <laughs> somebody would say what do you see I said love truth and I see that you're lying to yourself I see you resisting I see you going against the grain Why do you resist what I'm offering you? I'm just telling you my truth. Why is it so hard? If I told you my tragedy, you would be my best friend. I tell you how I feel now, you have no time for me. That's fascinating. Utterly fascinating. And for 11 so-called years, I've been fascinated in utter amazement to be in a maze loving what is at utter peace. Being with friends as they would reach out to me and say that I'm in hospital in the East Bay, please come. I've been given a horrible diagnosis. I have days to live. Why would they call me? I thought. So I find myself on BART. East Bay I go. No clue about where I'm going. I get to hospital and my friend says, pray for me. I said, what do you think I'm doing? Be with me. I said, what do you think I'm doing? I said, I love you more than words can imagine. Because words are concessions. They only go so far. He says, I don't understand that way of talking. I said, and it's beautiful that you don't understand that. But your heart understands it very clearly. Don't let your mind get engaged in this. You have days to live, right? Right? He said, yeah. I said, how about this moment? Are you living now? And with tears in both of our eyes and his partner sitting off to the side, he said, just be with me. And we be with each other for a while. It was sweet. Yes, it was sweet. It was tender. And tender's become a favored word of mine. You know what? Truth is Tender. sometimes not popular. He told me his truth in that day that he was frightened to die, frightened to leave his partner behind and what would have happened to the apartment. I said, be with this experience as fully as you can. I would have other occasions to have this conversation, this being with a so-called other person. You see, it's love talking to love, right? And one day... I get a phone call from my sister, Janice. Mother, on Friday, she called me on Sunday, has gone to lay down, and and she hasn't gotten up since. She's being fed intravenously. Hospice is at the house. Everyone's been here. Time has come, and everyone's at her peace but you. The one is not allowed to come. She was in the house that I was born and raised in, in the little Riverdale, Georgia. And she said, Mom has not uttered a word. I'll put the phone up to her ear, and I'll let you talk to her, but she's not going to respond to you. So for a few moments, as she put the phone up to my mother's ear, I could hear what could only be described as a little puppy dog sort of uh, breathing and sometimes a little grunt, as a puppy dog does when it sleeps. And I told my mother, I've found peace and I invite you to it. You've done what you've come here to do. You've done the best that you knew to do. You've done your part. It's time to surrender. I've become so emotional saying that. My sister didn't know when I was done. And so I would continue hearing my mother's breath. So after a few moments, she said, are you done? I said, it would seem so. She said, okay, I'll keep you up to date if anything changes or when something changes. And about four hours later, she called me. and She said, she's gone. What did you say to her? I said, that was between me and mom. I said, I could repeat it to you, but it wouldn't mean as much. It's just me responding to your inquiry. So guess so You're not going to tell me. I said, if it becomes essential, I will. Are you open to that? Because it's not about me. It's not about another object talking to another object. This is about love talking to love. A love that is not acknowledged, of course, by many people. One of those days, walking with my iPod, listening to Eckhart, sweetly. He has a great voice, by the way. And a wonderful message. And I hear somebody attempting to get my attention. Across the street, and they're walking in lockstep with me. It was just off of Van Ness Boulevard. And so I pulled one of my earbuds out. He obviously needed attention. And through his way of acknowledging uh, or not acknowledging what was really going on, he was basically hitting on me. And I thought to myself, do I tell him I'm not interested in guys? You don't attract me? Or do I just smile and just respond to his inquiry? Question after question I responded. He goes, You're not much of a talker. I said, Do you ask questions? I gave you a response. But do you appear to need more from me? What is it that you need from me? He goes, I need a mate, I need a partner, man. Come on. (laughs) I said, Well, isn't that something? I said, I don't. (laughs) You know, it comes when it comes. And when she comes around the mountain, then I'll be there. He says, I don't get it. I said, never mind. I said, I can't give you what you want. He stopped. Puzzled. What do, you, what do you know? What I, how do you know what I want? I said, he already told me. But at the heart of it, you need attention, don't you? You need attention in any way you can get it. And I've given you attention. I can be of help to you if you're open to it. He said, are you a teacher? I said, yes. In the most fundamental way, because a teacher... If you look at the Old Norse or uh, Old Latin, I don't recall which, take hand, which is to point. A teacher is a pointer. So in that sense, yes, I'm a teacher. I point you in a direction. He said, in what direction? I said, to love. Love what? Love yourself. Love yourself more than you can imagine. And when you have that, then you have it to give. Have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> proceeded to put my earbud back in, listening to Eckhart back home. It was sweet, just like it was. I was not perturbed, and I recognized perturbedness. Right? Can we keep our heart and mind open and the heart of tragedy and the heart of tenderness? It's amazing that when I spoke to my mother prior to her death, I spoke to her in person. When my mother was first diagnosed with cancer, stage three or four, breast cancer, actually had a hole underneath her left breast, and she refused treatment. Sister Diane says, you better come. So friends got me a ticket to go see her, and I was there for three days or two days before she would allow me to come, before she would agree to see me. I stayed at my sister's house. I'd already been scheduled to be there for a week. And when I finally was allowed to see her, she said, well, I'm pretty much done having this conversation. I'm going to go take a nap now. And I take it that when I'm awake that you will be gone with your sister. And I said, well, that's quite interesting. She was laying on the couch. I got on the floor so I'd be face-to-face with her, much like I was face-to-face with a little girl. And she looked at me with very stern voice and said, Are you satisfied? I said, Come again. She goes, You got to see me. Are you satisfied? And without blinking an eye, I actually got another inch, I think, to her I said mother I did not come across country to be satisfied I came here to be with you and that's precisely what I'm doing she says I don't understand that language I said I hear that a lot I get that and it's quite alright that you don't understand that she said well I'm tired I wish you the best I said "Mama, send you love That'd be the last time I saw her in person. A mother that refuses to accept you. And that boy that needed my attention. (laughs) One of the things he yelled at to me was, You are a tranny, aren't you? I said, Come again. (laughs) A transsexual. Right. Um, sure. And what bearing does that have on your reality? what does this have to do with you? He goes, well, I'm rather attracted to that. I said, ah, very good. (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) How beautiful that is. Right? How beautiful this is. Did I out myself up here? I've been insufficiently of that. Another gentleman told me one time as he was hitting on me, I found myself with my Leo slightly coming out. And he says, Why aren't you attracted to me? I said, I think I already know what you're going to say. I got the same training you get, <laughs> <laughs> I had the same education. I'm bored. <laughs> so that is my story. So thank you for letting me share my truth with you in a tender way. Thank you.